Hello and welcome to Bibliophiles, a podcast where you get to sit in on conversations about books and reading with the ultimate book lovers, librarians. In each episode, we'll explore a theme and tell you what we're excited about reading right now. We hope you enjoy. This week, we're talking about revisiting childhood favorites. I'm your host, Jen Webb. I'm the uh, Bibliographic Services Manager here at Cary Library. And as a child, I was all about Heidi. Oh, that's sweet. <laughs> to the point where my father refused to read it to me again until I <laughs> let him try something new. <laughs> so let's go around the table. Uh, hi, my name is Diane. And probably my favorite one that stands out in my mind was Sil- Silas Marner by George Eliot. You were an advanced kid. Yeah. It, was, it was one of those books that was forced upon me oh, in yeah. middle school. And I had to read it for English, and it struck me as just an amazing book. Mm. So it was one of those forced reads that you actually enjoyed. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, later we should talk about kind of the first school book that really fired you up about literature. Uh, My name is Jen. I'm the teen services librarian. The first book that I remember was actually one that my second grade teacher recommended just for reading for fun was Boxcar Children. And of course, it being an 18 book series, I was pretty set for reading for quite a while after that. Hi, I'm Kate. I'm the technology librarian. And as a kid, although I've branched out since, as a kid, I had one book, and that book was Banicula. Nice. That's a a classic. (laughs) Um, My name is Megan. I'm the programming librarian here. Um, and one of my favorite books as a kid that I read over and over and over again was From the Mixed Up Files of Mrs. Basil E. Frankweiler. Yeah. Nice. My name is Matt Schumann. I assist Megan with programming and manage the art here. Um, the uh, book that stood out most and I reread um, pretty much throughout all of my life was um, Fahrenheit 451. Mm-hmm. I think that was definitely a life-changing book for a lot of people. Yeah. I actually have never read Fahrenheit 451. I, I know either. this is terrible as a librarian <laughs> and a right. fan of science fiction <laughs> and a fan of Ray Bradbury. But yeah, I okay, I got to do that. I'm putting yeah, it on I know. the list. I think I do too. <laughs> on the list. What what struck you about it, Matt? Well, it, I read it before 1984, mm. um, but. It's so true, mm. um, especially the like dog, the metallic robot dog chasing scene. Oh, wait, I forgot to give him credit. There's a robot dog? Yeah. Okay, I'm, I'm like 60% more interested in <laughs> and, and the ending is like, literally apocalyptic. Um, oh, wow. So it, it's a uh, terrifying and... It always feels like it's on that very, you can connect it very easily to reality. That's not terrifying at all. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it seems to be eternally relevant. (laughs) I think one of the things, unless I'm remembering the wrong dystopian book, one of the things I thought was especially prescient about Fahrenheit 451, it was like there's a scene where he comes home and his wife is like standing in the room with all, like there's four TVs. Yeah. And like, when your book was written, like, no, there were not, like, black panel televisions, yeah. but, like, that's what the, pe- the pretty people do. They stand and they watch four different shows at the same time, mm. and that's their life. Mm-hmm. And look, looking back, now, it's like, rereading, I've reread, like, maybe passages of that, and I was just like, whoa. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Who would have thought that we would 
would be relevant yeah. now. It's funny because sometimes visions of the future from the past really don't don't make yeah. <laughs> don't hold up at all, or they tell you more about that time than mm-hmm. they do about your own. Which in a, it's a funny, it kind of dovetails nicely with the theme of this episode, which is revisiting those beloved books from childhood, which also sometimes don't hold <laughs> up. <laughs> so, has anyone recently revisited a book and wants to report back on the experience? I can briefly. <laughs> um, Going off of Benicula, which is a tri- which is a triumph of literature, and everybody <laughs> should read Benicula. The sequels, maybe a little bit less, but great. One of the books I liked as a kid and liked all through college was Ender's Game. Um, mm-hmm. If you reread Ender's Game as an adult, Ender is annoying. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like just there's so many tropes that you can see now. And the way that he treats his peers, like, he's really kind of awful. And, like, I'm rereading the book, which is was one of my favorite books. You know, Ender was brilliant, and he was a genius. And um, has everybody at this table read Ender's mm-hmm. Game? Okay, don't watch the movie. Um, <laughs> uh, that, it, that he's a genius, and he's been raised as a genius, and he's going to be a military hero, which he does. But it's kind of like a chosen one. He's kind of it's a cho- it's an early chosen one. Mm-hmm. Um, but the female characters are really poorly treated, and Ender is just not like it's really hard to identify with him or even mm-hmm. to like him, mm-hmm. um, which I found shocking because like I thought he was, I thought he was the best thing ever. Probably the first five times I read the book <laughs> and then I reread it, and I was like, oh. Mm-hmm. It was, I didn't. It was shocking to me. I didn't read Ender's Game until I was an adult, until I started working at the library. And uh, it's true, like, all the characters are kind of remote in mm-hmm. that book in a funny way. Um, and Ender and his siblings are all just kind of deeply disturbing and disturbed individuals, <laughs> which is kind of the point. But, in, but yeah. it's also weird in, like, in young... In, what is basically a young adult science fiction novel to have an entire cast of characters who are non-empathetic? Mm-hmm. Well, it's I, interesting because it's, you know, it's from before young adult was a thing, yeah. and it's not. Really, it's very much kind of an adult's picture of children, not an attempt to meet young readers where they are, which is interesting. Yeah. I mean, I still think it's a really good book, and I always recommend it to people and. Uh, for a while, it was one of the choices for the freshmen coming in for high school summer reading, and I think it's a great choice for that, and you can get into some nice political and ethical discussions. But it is a book that reads yeah. very differently the first time than, yeah. than mm-hmm. the second time. There's a lot of children's books like that, because I read a lot of them again when I re- would read to my kids. And the reason I did Silas Marner is because I love that book so much in eighth grade. That I said, my son, and it's so um, buried in the stacks of classic literature now. Mm-hmm. It's not mainstream in the schools at all. So I, I said, just let me read this one to you. It's so great. And he was like 12 at the time, and he's like, Ma, really? I'm like, yeah, no, you got to hear this one. <laughs> and he listened, and he's like, and I read it over a few nights, and he's like, wow, that was a fantastic story. Wow. So I was able to give it to him, and I still loved it at this age. And that's mm-hmm. what I think holds the test of time, is mm-hmm. that you can 
take a different road down that same book. There were so many different um, characters that had so much more depth that I wasn't at the capacity to appreciate it in eighth grade. Mm-hmm. But when I see it now, um, the, the character depth is incredible and the moral lessons. And, um, it, you know, it just kind of leads me to a discussion we were having earlier today about classic literature that you read and digested because it was on the uh, required reading list. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you would read it, and you would think to yourself, well, I guess it was okay. It's a classic, you know? And you would think that it was a book you were supposed to appreciate, even if you didn't fully understand it. And then we were talking upstairs today about how some of these classics are really terrible. (laughs) You know? And I brought up Wuthering Heights because... I could fix that problem in five minutes, you know? I'm like, first of all, it's not titled properly. It should be three generations of jerks and idiots. (laughs) And somebody needs to leave Wuthering Heights. Like, leave. And you you won't get along with these people. Just leave. The problem is solved on chapter two. Just lock Kathy and Heathcliff in a room together and leave them. Everyone yeah. else, yeah. go on with your lives. Yeah, like they are just balls of destruction. Just let them destroy yes. each other. And like, so I'm like, I have to read this whole book to get to the so point. True. I can solve this in five minutes. Oprah could do it in two. You know? <laughs> yes, we need Oprah. Yeah, to help those crazy kids. So, yeah. did you read Silas Marner aloud? I read Silas mm-hmm. Marner aloud mm-hmm. because it's it's not the longest mm-hmm. book. It's kind of a short story, mm-hmm. and it's mm-hmm. it's wonderful the relationship between this weaver and this toddler who stumbles into his cottage one evening. And there's uh, you know a whole background story, but he was something of a miser who hoarded his gold, and then um, his gold was stolen. And he was completely devastated because he had his whole heart and soul in this, in his wealth. And when it was gone, and then a toddler, a two-year-old, comes in on a stormy night and is just playing in the kitchen. And his love immediately transfers to this child who just walked in. And it's the story of how he raises her and his love for her. And it's just a wonderful piece of literature. And it made me say, okay, if it stands the test of time, it's, it's a worthwhile quality classic. And then other ones like Wuthering Heights, and I don't know if you guys all have ones that you could <laughs> confess are, you know, if you, if you were labeling it, it, it would never make the cut. It would go in the, in the trash heap, you know, and it's a world-renowned <laughs> classic. Which well, is, I, I think we all have classics that we hate. Yeah. I think... Uh, you know, if you want to introduce a story to somebody and you need to get over a hump of some kind, reading it aloud is a great way to do it. I mean, yeah. I mean, I have such fond memories of being read to, and I'm really excited someday about reading to my child. And up until pretty recently, we still read aloud. You know, we read aloud to each other at home as adults, and I read to my parents as adults. And 
It's just great because then you you can convey what you love about the book through your performance. Of it. It's true. <laughs> yeah, one of my favorite memories is actually going on a road trip with some friends and just hunkered in the back seat reading a book out loud to them. It was mm-hmm. really. We, we still like talk about it every once in a while. Mm-hmm. Megan, you should read another book to us. <laughs> I also once read The Princess Bride on a camping trip aloud, and everybody fell asleep on me, and I didn't realize Aww. until like four chapters later. <laughs> Well, sometimes when has a Pavlovian response to, <laughs> to being read being to. Read to. Yeah. It's true. The reader just needs to be a little bit aware of their surroundings. <laughs> they're putting people to sleep. Um, a book that I haven't reread in full, but I've reread passages of that was one of my favorites as a kid was The Secret Garden. Mm. Um, I was really into The Secret Garden. I had a secret garden um, behind my parents' garage. There was like a small bit of like very like you know maybe like five feet by whatever the length of like a full-size two-car garage is and then there was a fence and so in that space between the fence and the garage I had my secret garden um which I didn't tend I just like would get seed packets from my mom and then like dump them on the ground and Mm -hmm. then wait to see what happened and I would like hang out back there um and I was convinced that they would all blossom and it would be beautiful and like I'd somehow get a beautiful swing and like Dickon would arrive with like a pony yes it'd be great you're a bit Um, of earth (laughs) yes a bit of earth um but I loved The Secret Garden as a kid, and rereading it, I still think it's great. Um, but as a kid, I totally skipped over the fact that these two, like the, the main character and her cousin, are like terribly neglected, traumatized, like need incredible <laughs> amounts of therapy. Like, the adults are terrible to them. Like, oh. They just do not Isn't give them the kind of love and care that, that they need. You and you're like, Victorian parenting standards were different, but you're also like, these children are terribly traumatized. Like, the fact that she was alone in that house in India with, like, dead bodies all over mm-hmm. and they forgot about her is just so terrible as an adult. Mm-hmm. You feel like you want to, like, go back in time and rescue this child. Whereas a kid, you're just like, okay, well, now we're, well, now it's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're, like, it's, it's amazing the things that you don't understand so as a kid. Different. And then yeah. as an adult, you feel, like, this responsibility towards the characters or you, you view them so differently and... So that one, I think, still holds up as a story, but, like, your perspective changes so much from being a kid that it was kind of hard to read because it kept being, like, no, like, don't just let them run around Misselthwaite Manor. (laughs) Just send her out into the cold and, like, onto the moors. Like, anything could happen to her. (laughs) Thank God it was only Dickon that she ran into, you know? Oh, yeah. Reacting reacting as an adult to children's peril in books. It's so funny. I had a very similar reaction when I picked up The Egypt Game, which was a book that I loved as a kid, and I loved the mystery and the atmosphere in it, and I I haven't read it in so long that I really couldn't remember much about it except that there was an Egypt game, and these kids kind of invented it on their own, and it was this really cool, mysterious thing. And other than that, I remembered no details. I didn't remember the characters' names or anything. And so I picked it up at lunch today, and um, it starts off with a girl who, um, I forget how old she is, but she's about elementary school age, and she has been sent to live with her grandmother um, because her mother is a Hollywood star and she's off on tour or something, but essentially she's too busy to raise her, her child, and so she sends her to live with the grandmother. And, you know, as an adult, your first reaction is, how tragic this is. Like, why can't she be with her mother? And I, I don't remember 
anything like that as a kid. It was just like, oh, what's this neat game? Because it's, mm-hmm. it's kind of a lot of the same elements that you were mentioning in the Secret Garden. There's these kids, and they go to this kind of secret hangout in the back of this old shop, and you know they're just kind of unsupervised, so they're they're independent and they're self reliant. The, the magic, the everyday magic that happens as a result of these kids kind of coming together in, in their own secret world. Well, that's a really mm-hmm. classic element of children's stories is the unsupervised children. Mm-hmm. Yeah, either, <laughs> the parents. either the orphans or the runaways or whatever. And mm-hmm. um, I think as a kid, that's sort of appealing because it's the idea of independence. It's, you know, the lack of restraint. It's mm-hmm. being able to make your own decisions, which you're so hampered by as a kid. Like, you don't get to make your own rules. Mm-hmm. It's so exciting. And that's, I think, what makes so many of these books just so tempting or like, or if the parents are there, they're like completely absent. Like, right. Mm-hmm. It's really, really great. All of I, I just I wrote three books down, and two of them it's all orphan children, and then the other one is <laughs> runaways. I was like, look at that. Like, well, James really and the Giant anything. Peach is the one where they have the really mean aunts. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and you just can't away. believe how awful they are. And so when he's finally out on his own, and I don't know, something terrible happens to the aunts, and they die. And as a child, you think, good. Yeah. Had it coming. Roald Dahl is yeah. great at adults who had it coming. Yeah. <laughs> great at Matilda. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Um, another one of my favorites as a kid was Harriet the Spy. I also used to spy on all my neighbors. After <laughs> that book. Um, and, yeah, like, her parents, I mean, they're, like, technically there, but, like, they don't really factor in until pretty late in the book. They just, I mean, and there she's wandering Manhattan, and you're like, as an adult, you're like, oh, my God. <laughs> but um, it is funny. It is It is so great to go back and revisit these books because yeah. you do have such a 180-degree shift on it. There's one book that um, sticks with me that both my kids read was Jerry Spinelli's um, Loser. Has anybody mm-hmm. read that? No. It's great because not only does it give the kids a fresh perspective on competition and society structure. But it's also, if a parent reads it or reads it to their child, it's kind of warning the parent not to fall into the trappings of today's society. And it's about a little boy whose um, hope in life is to be a mailman. He's a very simple kid. You know, the reason that they call the books called Loser is because he's such a simple kid. He's not good at school. He's not good at sports. So he's not included with the proper social circles. His parents are very easygoing. They don't make waves. And if he gets an opportunity to ride with the mailman to deliver the mail, that's his life's mission. He's (laughs) so happy. His parents sign him up for soccer. And, of course, it's like the ruthless, competitive parents driving their kids to score, win the trophy, and he's caught up in this world, and he's looking at all the parents screaming at him to chase the ball, and then when they get the trophy, everybody's jumping up and down, and he doesn't understand why he should be jumping up and down about the trophy, because he's so little. But he says, okay, I guess I'm supposed to do this. But the bottom line is that these kids develop that mean-spiritedness that comes with being forced to perform and succeed at a higher level. They look at him at the end of the book, and he still is content with simple pleasures. 
and he's a genuinely happy kid and they haven't society hasn't penetrated his joy and he goes along and his goal in life is to be a mailman and no one can touch it and the other little kids kind of look at him with envy because they've been forced to, to grow up a little bit faster than they should have, to care about things that they never really cared about, that was forced upon them. So you're reading this as a parent saying, I gotta make sure that I don't get caught up because mm. it's so easy to get caught up in that wave of pressure that parents put on their children. And this book is warning parents, if he wants to be a mailman, back off, yeah. let him be a mailman. It's his joy. Whatever his joy is, that's what you're the guardian of. So it's a great book because the kids love it. It's a wonderful story, and they get the message. It's not too complex. But the parents get the message, too, if they read the book. So there's few that run in between, that can run the parallel. Mm-hmm. That This is off the topic of children's books. That it just reminded me about a new book that's just come out called Love That Boy. It's a memoir by a political journalist about his son who's diagnosed with Asperger's and he's having a really hard time with it because he the only way he ever kind of thought he could connect with a son would be through sports and this kid is not good at sports and has no interest but what he is interested in is history and presidents Um, and so he decides he's got to try to meet this kid on his own ground and so they kind of take a road trip and they go around to historic sites and they try to meet presidents and because he was a Washington reporter, of course, he's able to get his kid in with some presidents. Wow. <laughs> uh, but it's just, it's lovely, and he talks a lot about parental expectations and parenting and, and anecdotes he's come across, like the, the parents who stenciled their baby girl's nursery with ballerinas to try to make her become a ballerina, and just, you know, ridiculous things. Mm. And it was just, it was you know, it's a lovely message and a neat book. It and the is. kid is just yeah. fantastic, you know, so wise in a way. Of course, his father is painting him that way. In the book. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he's, he finally realizes because the, the kid tells him right out, he's like, you know, I am happy. It's not your happiness. Like it's, it's not, I'm, it's not your standards of happiness, but you've got to understand that I am happy. Like I don't need more friends and, you know, I don't need to be on the team. Exactly. Um, that's what would make you happy. <laughs> right. right. And it would take away his joy. Mm-hmm. And that's where his joy is. And you need to adjust yourself to where, where they're at. And it is. Mm-hmm. It's, a good, it's a good message. Mm-hmm. And the children's books, they're not really children's books. They are, I think, really more properly for teens. But they came out kind of just before the existence of young adult as a genre. And that I go back to a lot that were so formative for me is the Alana series by Tamora Pierce. I feel like I talk about this all the time, but I met my best friend because of these books in high school, freshman year of high school. She saw me reading them, and uh, she struck up a conversation. And uh, the big disagreement between us was always who we rooted for Alana getting together with in the end. (laughs) Because as a 14-year-old, you know, know nothing, I was rooting for Alana and Prince Jonathan. And Robin wisely told me that George was a much better partner for Alana. <laughs> and eventually I came around to that way of thinking. Although it must be said, looking back now, that George is a lot older than Alana. <laughs> a lot older. Kind of problematically so. But uh, what's great about those books, in which I didn't even notice at all as a 13 or 14-year-old, is that they have this really refreshing attitude towards sex and relationships. Um, And it's funny because these books are in children's collections all over the country, 
and people have just kind of gotten used to it. But in the second book, she turns 18 and, you know, has sex. And it's no big deal. It's totally fine. Like, everyone's responsible about it. Nobody gets their heart broken. Like, it's just fine. And then, you know, she has another relationship with somebody else and another relationship with somebody else. And now as an adult, I realize that at least one of her boyfriends is like a total git. <laughs> Liam, Iron Arm. I mean, come on, get out of my face. But <laughs> How many books were there, Jim? There's four in, the, in that original uh, series about Alana. And then she's written many, many, many more that are more, they get kind of more traditionally young adult after that, uh, the further ahead you get. I've seen that author mm-hmm. several times. She must have done a lot of books. Yeah, she's done a lot of books. But this is such an interesting, it was really kind of a groundbreaking series, especially for the time, because it featured, you know, kind of a tomboy heroine um, who's you know, allowed to have sex and the world doesn't end and there's no big moral <laughs> message about it. And she's just a fabulous character because she never really gets that makeover scene. Like, you know, there is sort of a makeover scene. I mean, she does put on a pretty dress and she does enjoy trying out being a woman from time to time. Because the premise is that she's disguised herself as a boy because she wants to become a knight in this sort of medieval-y fantasy land that it takes place in. But she never really becomes feminine. You know, she's always who she is. And nor is she, you know, secretly ravishingly beautiful, you know, once you, <laughs> once you put her in a dress. You know, she's still like a big muscular knight. And I love that. Yeah, like Later on in another series, Tamora Pierce kind of introduces more female knights once Alana blazes the trail and introduces the concept that kind of there's more than one way to be a woman and that there are some female knights who stay in touch with their girly side and some who don't and that that's all totally okay. It's just great. And maybe some, <laughs> maybe some girls who read those books went on to be Navy SEALs yeah. and, you know, <laughs> Absolutely. combat. <laughs> Soldiers. I mm-hmm. wonder whether George R. R. Martin had read those at all, because I just can't help thinking mm-hmm. about some of the characters in Game of Thrones. Mm-hmm. Brienne, mm-hmm. but also mm-hmm. uh, Arya. Arya. Mm-hmm. Alana. Well, Alana's probably like the more well-adjusted version of Brienne. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, yeah. no, no one in a Martin is particularly well-adjusted. Yeah, no, no <laughs> yeah. one's well-adjusted. No. Yeah. I just, I can't, I can't even go near Game of Thrones because it, there's so much of it and there's a very good chance that it will never be finished. And I'm like, I can't make that kind of commitment. I can't go down that road because that road leads to madness. Probably. <laughs> All-consuming. <Yeah>. All-consuming. <laughs> You're thinking about it all the time. Mm-hmm. It occupies your thoughts. Mm-hmm. How That's how I was about Harry Potter. When Were I you really? Like, yeah. Because well, I started reading, so the first book came out when I was 11, so oh. I was the same age as the characters. So, like, for the first couple of years, like, I read them with, like, I aged with the characters, and I... Matt, like, you did, too? They were my friends. You're like, I loved them, and I was obsessed with them, and I knew everything about Harry Potter. <laughs> and, like, I went to a Harry Potter release party for the first movie, and I killed that trivia. And <laughs> nice. I was, like, really into it, and I was sort of like that, like, it was one of those... I mean, with her, there wasn't, I guess, the imminent threat of death, because, like, Martin is quite... Is quite a bit older than she was when she was writing them, but still, it was like, when is this going to end? Like, how long am I going to have to wait? And that <laughs> that feeling, that commitment, was really well. That must taxing. be so tar- hard in between books when you're that consumed by it. Oh yeah, I would just reread them over and over, and it, it actually got, I mean, better once there were more books to reread because you're like, well, at least I'm not just rereading the second book three times. <laughs> so, but yeah, those like series that sort of consume you as a kid, it does, or even as an adult, like as with Game of Thrones. 
do you find that disappointment is inevitable with the endings of series like that? Yeah. Like, yeah. When, especially when you have so long to build up in your mind how epic is the ending is going to be, and then inevitably it just can't ever quite match what you hope. Yeah. Well, like, the Boxcar Children, I was also obsessed with that. And granted, I was a kid, but, like, I don't remember how it ends. I remember well, the beginning. the Boxcar Children is an interesting case study because the original author, Gertrude Chandler Warner, yeah. wrote 18. And then at some point, someone decided there should be more Boxcar Children books. Uh. So they published dozens more stories and it's kind of like the Simpsons where yeah. like they don't really age although mm. that that original 18 they did age like Benny got older like he started out at like five or six years yeah. old um and he he did age up and that was noticeable because he became kind of like a teenager but then when they hit 19 they I think they reset it so they mm. were just like always the same age this never-ending world mm. of children I feel like these days Kids, you know, characters in books don't get to grow up, and you don't get to follow a kid all the way into adulthood, and you used to. Like, that used to be a very common thing. I remember that is what struck me so much about the Twilight series, about which, you know, there's ever so many things that could be said. (laughs) But I think one of the things that's kind of neat about it is that you get to follow Bella all the way from teenager to motherhood. Which, you know, it, it it reminded me kind of of Ellen Montgomery and of the books I enjoyed as a child where you actually get to see people grow up and get married and, like, because I was a romance-minded person, probably, like, almost from day one of my life, I was always like, but who are they going to marry? <laughs> <laughs> and I think that ties, too, with, I think, probably one of the other obvious, for at least, sorry, no judgment, Matt, the female members of the table is, like, the little little house on the prairie oh, was beloved of every girl yes, I've ever known. I loved it. Mm-hmm. No. Yeah. No. <gasps> no. 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 Not a fan. Not a fan. Dissension. I like that. Uh, Jen, speak to it. How could you go down on Boxcar yeah. Children and then not like Little I, House on the Prairie? I they like so similar, I right? don't even know what it was that I didn't like about Little House on the Prairie because we had, like, we owned them. They were in my house and I just remember I didn't like them. I, I probably read at least two or three of them. And I think it was the one about winter. Oh, the long winter. Oh, the long, long, long winter really sealed the deal. It was like, this is horrible. <laughs> it was actually named. <laughs> oh, yeah. I used to dress up. My mom used to sew me prairie outfits, like little prairie dresses Aww. and bonnets and aprons and bloomers, the whole bit. I had little half boots. Um, My childhood oh, best yeah. friend and I used to play Pioneers and... And mm-hmm. our, our pioneer journey in, across the West in a covered wagon was from the second floor of the house to the third floor, where there was kind of a, an attic and play area. Um, and we would pack up all our dolls and all their stuff, and we would like slowly go up like, step by step, and we would make camp on the stairs. Oh, that's awesome. And then when we got to the third floor, there's a bathroom like right at the top, and it would be like, we found a spring! <laughs> I used to play covered wagon in my bed. I had like a full size bed, and I would have to get all my belongings onto the bed, and they all had to fit and be packed in. Oh yeah, I was really into it. And then I read the like the ones that are about Rose, her daughter. I read all of those, and my I still remember one night like after my parents had put me to bed and I was supposed to be asleep, I got up and I got them both and I'm reading it, and then Pa dies. 
I was I like never got that far. Oh, it's so heartbreaking. Like my mom actually heard me cry. My parents' bedroom was on the second floor. Mine was on the first floor. They heard me cry, and my mom came down. And was like, "What's wrong?" And I was like, "Pa died." <laughs> and, um, which, like, considering that this man, like, in the 1800s, like, shocker, he dies. Um, yeah. But I was really emotionally attached to those books, and I think those were ones that. Um, and kids I'm, really, really formed that attachment and obsession. And with. I'm just laughing too because I think I. I took in Little House on the Prairie in a different way than everybody else at the table because I lived in the middle of nowhere on a really, really badly built remote ranch. So, like, mm. when I read The Long Winter, I'm like, yup, sucks for me, too. <laughs> <laughs> like, pipes are frozen, gotta melt the snow. And like, oh, it spoke me, directly to you. was, like, affirming, I'm like, yeah, it's yeah. cool. This is You're awful. living it, so you don't want to be reading about it when you're like, in it. But in, in a way, like, it was sort of cathartic. That's why that... I'm just now getting this pivotal <laughs> moment in my childhood. I liked it because my life sucked like hers. <laughs> Were you really invested in like her romance with Almanza? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, yeah. When he would come and pick her up from that other school, mm-hmm. like where she had to live with those terrible family, I was just like, oh, he's so sweet. And mm-hmm. he gave her the. I, see, I was really obsessed. Like when he gave her the silver backed like hairbrush set, mm-hmm. I was like, whoa. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. yeah. I remember she got a fawn-colored calf as a wedding present from Pa, and I was like, oh my god, that's so cute. <laughs> really I, was definitely, I was definitely a shipper before the term. Yeah. Came around. yeah. But did any of you read that fascinating article a few years back about kind of the real story of, yeah. of Laura Ingalls Wilder yeah. and her parents and how that was, it was so interesting. I'll have to find the link for yeah. our listeners. But uh, about how looking back at it in historical context, their lives were much harder than they should have been, much harder than oh, they yeah. needed to be, because Pa was, you know, kind of illegally squatting on <laughs> land and kept moving them around, and, you know, that some of those hardships that you read about that are kind of fascinating and inspiring as a kid were completely unnecessary <laughs> and inflicted on them by their, like, shiftless death. Yeah. <laughs> and it really is one of those kind of disillusioning <laughs> Yeah, I've read, there's a couple of books about, like adult women revisiting their own obsession with mm-hmm. the um, little house books. And I think one is called The Wilder Life that I read. I'll have to double mm-hmm. check. But um, there's one where a woman kind of goes and she visits all of the places they lived and she tries to like make some of the recipes that they do and she learns how to sew. And she, she kind of tries to recreate a lot of the situations from the book. And it's fascinating and it's it's enlightening and it makes you really realize, yeah, how Pa was kind of terrible and um, <laughs> like irresponsible and all this sort of thing. And yeah, that is that is like a cultural that. phenomenon that I think like people just get so attached to. And that's one that I don't think holds up. Mm. I think if I read that as an adult, I would be not as pleased. As yeah, I, I haven't it. tried. It'll be interesting to yeah. see, you know, if you know when and if the time comes yeah. to introduce it to a kid, you know how that goes. I know with Louisa May Alcott, my ability to deal with some of the moralizing there kind of diminishes with every passing year, like kind of the hatred of novels in Louisa May Alcott, how, you know, these terrible trash novels of adventure that, you know, will poison your children's minds and how any time that anyone puts on a pretty dress or even thinks about wanting a pretty dress, like something terribly goes (laughs) wrong and they're punished for it. Yeah. Like, really? I mean, okay. On the one hand, you know, Louisa May was rebelling against social expectations. And, you know, for her, it was very empowering to reject, you know, pretty clothes and fripperies or whatever and focus (laughs) on the meaningful stuff. But looking at it now, it's like, really? You know, (laughs) 
you, all you have to do is like look at an attractive piece of fabric and like something terrible will come along to punish you for your selfishness. <laughs> yeah, Amy really gets the short end of the stick in Little Women like over and over again. Mm-hmm. She's definitely the vain one. And even in Rose and Bloom, when you know, Rose has grown up and she's the perfect Alcott kid, you know, absolutely everything's the way it should be. She's doing charitable work, you know, she's healthy and she, you know, has all the right ideas and morals and she goes to a fabric store. At some point, she sees a bolt of attractive fabric in a shop and is like, oh, I could spend some of my money, you know, to make a dress in addition to spending it on the poor or whatever. <laughs> and then I, I can't remember how she's punished for it, but in some way she's punished for it and she has this long internal monologue about how <laughs> terrible it was that she even for a moment thought about spending some of her money on a dress. <laughs> Maybe this explains why I feel guilty buying things for myself. I read too much of the conference. Well, yeah. even when the older sister gets married in Little Women, and you remember that she wants something pretty so she can go out with her friends that are wealthier when she's married, and her husband comes home and looks at the ledger and says, you know, where is this money? You bought the bolts to make these dresses, or I don't remember it exactly. <laughs> But I do it's remember, dresses. Yeah, <laughs> right? It was dresses, and the husband has to end up working extra hours, oh, yeah. and she's oh. sitting home alone. She made him dinner. He doesn't come home for dinner because he's got to stay at the office to make extra money to pay for the dress. <laughs> what was she thinking? Not a trade-off. Now yeah. that you say that, I remember reading that, and I remember just feeling awful. And I was like, I don't like this book. <laughs> she didn't. She made the wrong choice. She should have gotten, she should have foregone something pretty and attractive yeah. so she could be with her husband and cook him dinner. And it, it's so... <laughs> Matt is shaking his head incredulously here. Oh, I take it you didn't read a lot of Louisa May Alcott. You didn't have to endure this sort of shaming. No, no. I think that's probably for the best. I'm also going to admit that I've not ever read Louisa May Alcott. <laughs> You know, I, I did like it. I have to say, I think oh, yeah. Jen's oh, yeah. voice is so legitimate. I read them as times. adults, and mm-hmm. I still liked them. And everything mm-hmm. Jen is claiming is absolutely true. <laughs> but I still like them. Yeah, mm-hmm. sometimes you can like things despite Through their love. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what is it in contrast that you like about I haven't experienced it, so I mean, you both presented some yeah. smart. <laughs> <It's just laughs> so There's so many like little clever lines, like when um, I think it's Aunt March, when the oldest daughter doesn't um, isn't sure about marrying the teacher, mm-hmm. and I don't remember the names, but um, you know, there's a scene where Aunt March comes in and says, "Oh, he's not good enough for you, and he doesn't have any money, and you wouldn't be happy with him, and he's all wrong for you," and just her ranting. It's in the title of the chapter is Aunt March Seals the Deal. (laughs) And it's pretty much because Aunt March says, absolutely not. You may not marry this guy. Well, she wasn't going to marry him, but she's going to marry him now just because (laughs) you told me not to. (laughs) And then they go on and they're very happy together, which is, you know, a rare situation. But like little stories in there that are like little funny situations about a family's mm-hmm. life yeah. it's literally yeah. a family's yeah. and life she's she's really wonderful at portraying kind of family love and the you know the respect and the affection between family members and the way 
especially female family members can support each other. And there's actually, there's two, my two favorite scenes probably in all of Alcott also involve dresses, but not, <laughs> not like evil dresses of shame. Um, in Eight Cousins, there's a wonderful scene where Rose is a little girl and um, she's being raised by her aunts and uncles and they're all fighting over what she's going to wear. And all the, the women want to dress her up in these very fashionable, stiff clothes that she can't move in them and they're so uncomfortable, but they look cute. And then Uncle Alec, who's, you know, the guy who has all the good Alcott views, comes in and, and dresses her in a cute but very practical, like, outfit she can move in and run and jump, and she's so excited about it. And it's, it's just such a lovely scene, because right. you know, there's a very strong thread of, you know, female liberation all, all, right. through all of the Alcott, along with all the moralizing. And, you know, good people are rewarded, and, you know, values are upheld, and... People use their ingenuity to get through hard times. Yeah, you know, it's that. great. Yeah, it's it is. It is good. I remember my aunt um, was the librarian at the small town that we lived in. So in the summer times, my mom would just drop me off, and I would go in, and it would—I'd be the only person in the library. It would be the <laughs> middle of the day, and it's a small town. And there's my aunt at the desk, and I wave to her, and I go over into the little tiny children's section, and I sit in there, I remember there's no fans, no air conditioning, it is stifling hot in this library, and I'm all by myself. And the uh, ceilings were like 15, 16 feet ceilings, it was a very old building, and I had like two choices, Nancy Drew, Little House on the Prairie, and there were a couple of uh, anonymous books that weren't well known. So I think I gravitated to Little House on the Prairie because every time I tried to get into Nancy Drew, which like you with Little House, you still read them, but you don't love them. So out of the two, it was just limited options <laughs> that brought me to love Little House on the Prairie. <laughs> oh, and there's a million options now. Now, and I do think about that. I think about being in that small little room <laughs> and just only a few choices for books when I was younger. And now it's such an explosion of genres yeah. as well as books. I guess in that sense, we can say that, that the world is getting to be a better place. Right. <laughs> Despite all the doom and gloom. We are leaving our children with way more reading options way than we. <laughs> oh yeah, so true. My hometown library had a. It was the middle of nowhere, so we had very limited options, and not so much children's books. But so I, I read really kind of typical stuff, and then there was a very pivotal summer where I spent a couple weeks with my uncle and aunt. My uncle was, when you think comic book guy, you're thinking about my uncle. <laughs> and I was probably 12 or 13, and he was decided he was going to spend that summer educating me on good comics. Mm-hmm. And like many 12 to 13-year-old girls from Montana, I had not read comics. That's for a boy thing. And after that summer, I was a comics girl. Um, but I still think that some of the most foundational things that I read and that I still will revisit because... I still find them good, um, was X-Men Dark Phoenix saga, mm. which introduced me to the to dark superheroes, but in a nuanced way. That you know, She kills an entire planet because it abuses her. And having great character be powerful and just murdery was kind of mind-blowing because <laughs> I've watched the cartoon and she doesn't murder people. This explains a lot about yeah. you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And your own, your current tastes in 
<laughs> you know, they're safe. It is. It all goes back to the formative years, mm-hmm. doesn't it? Other things it that really I've binge read and reread and reread. Watchmen, probably again, not mm. appropriate for a twelve-year-old. Oh wow! But yeah, oh much interesting. Like, having I don't. I gotta say, I don't like the movie, but Watchmen introducing regular people who are really, 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 really flawed individuals, not with any superhero characteristics. One of them, he does some very bad things in mm-hmm. Vietnam. Um, really, really bad things, but still as a superhero, like having that moral comp, like flip back and forth, it was mind blowing. And of course, the last one, which I have to promote just so I can slam a movie, <laughs> The Dark Knight Returns. Mm. I loved The Dark Knight Returns, which makes me really disappointed with the new Batman versus Superman mm. movie. Yes, but. That was Frank Miller's stuff is edgy and controversial, more so now than it used to be. But that kind of golden age of comics where you had these nuanced heroes who could have that edge, and even in Frank Miller's Bat, you know, Batman Returns, like he's he's Batman, but he doesn't just go around murdering people. <laughs> like a certain movie. Um, but, <laughs> yes. But those are, you know, I read you know like Sweet Valley Twins. Brings me shame. Oh yeah, um, no shame, no us. shame. Love Spot Valley, but <laughs> just introducing, finding out that there was nuance, comic books. Yeah, it was mind blowing. <laughs> Especially Jean Grey. I mean, like oh I, Jean I Grey, her as like a kid because she is like a quintessential, very complicated like yeah. character, and and I think X Men too is as, as a whole does deals with that well yeah. because people joining. Magneto's side of the Brotherhood yeah. of the Evil going back and forth. Like I desperately tried to make Jean Grey stick as a nickname for myself. It failed utterly. Aww. Aww. I, was, Aww. I, I tried as only a 12-year-old girl. Really <laughs> but there was, it was, those were brilliant. They, of the things that I actually read as a kid, I, I'm not going to reread Benicula too many more times right now, but <laughs> re, those graphics really, they hold up for me. Mm. So your current reading tastes definitely seem informed by your childhood and oh, adolescent yes. tastes. I know I read a ton of historical fiction. I still love history, both nonfiction and historical fiction. How about mm-hmm. everybody else? Do you think your childhood reading tastes carry on to your adult reading tastes? Oh, well, definitely. I was also a yeah. shipper, for sure. Yeah, and definitely. I mean, fantasy and romance. Yeah, gotta have a love story. <laughs> yeah, and since my favorite series right now is The Raven Boys by oh, Maggie so Stupid. good. And it's so about, like, coming together as friends and finding mm-hmm. this mystical reality. Yep, that, that's what I was reading when I was 10, 11, 12. Mm-hmm. I'm, re- I'm listening to them on audio right now. They're so good. Mm-hmm. You know what's yep. amazing yeah, is I went up. through all those stages of books. I never read Boxcar, but... And then I went into Stephen King and mm-hmm. all the great, you know, like V.C. Andrews, D- Daniel Steele. You go through all those. Oh, we, we have to talk about V.C. Andrews sometime. Yeah. yeah. I we should not today, do but sometime. Stephen King did, too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but the thing is, is I kind of got it out of my system. <laughs> and the thing that I did when I was a kid that seemed so dominant in my reading choices now is the books in our basement that my dad kept on a shelf were all his history books because he loved history. And I would just pull those books down and just read them and read them just because they were there and you read yeah. books. Mm-hmm. And it 
pulled me in and it got me and I put them back and I'd read my VC Andrews and all the other stuff and I just went through those stages and now I just read history and now you're back. fiction mm-hmm. it got me back yeah mm-hmm. I'm like I think that was my <laughs> mainstay yeah and I didn't even know it because I went all over the place mm-hmm. Matt have your childhood reading tastes carried through well I have like a different childhood than most of my friends or peers here in that I went to a small Christian school for seven years where literature, like all the things that you're talking about, I know of, but I'm, I wasn't pressured to, it, we didn't have reading lists like that. We just read the Bible oh. and whatever the comes from that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and in not being religious anymore since I was not at the school from eighth grade on, I think that having that sort of absence does affect me, and as well as like that being the kind of solitary text, re- reading that as a kid. So that literature, I like literature that's maybe in a more philosophical mm-hmm. sense or dealing mm-hmm. with ethical issues mm-hmm. yeah, um, yeah. in having the absence of faith personally now that there's kind of always a search for something more and for ethical guidance which used to be much easier mm. with you know prescriptive text from bible and whatnot i always feel kind of uh behind too oh. because everyone mm-hmm. can talk about all these series and whatnot but i did not have the only one i read as a kid really was lord of the rings but it was really hard to read <laughs> Yeah. 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 It's heavy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In in libraries, you know, when people ask for book recommendations, the usual question you ask is, well, what have you read recently that you enjoyed? Maybe the question we should be asking is, what were you reading when you were a preteen? Right. <laughs> yeah. 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 Definitely, if you want to shape your kids reading uh, for the rest of their lives, carefully manage what they have access to. (laughs) Stock those home bookshelves. Yeah, Yeah. we can make recommendations. (laughs) Yeah, stop by and see it. Really, I mean, you know, what is reading but a continual search for meaning. Yes, indeed. Thanks, everybody, for sharing your childhood memories and and, uh, poking into those dark corners of the past. Bibliophiles is a production of Cary Memorial Library in Lexington, Massachusetts. Matt Schumann engineered the podcast and created our theme music. Do you have questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes? Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Library or on Twitter and Instagram at Library. That's C-A-R-Y-M-E-M Library. For show notes and to find out more about us, visit us at carrylibrary.org.